inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. And if you get a chance, it'd be awesome if you'd give this podcast a rating and review. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, there have been a lot of interesting events going on around my barn. It's now mid-November 2020, and this fall has unfolded in unusual ways. You know, for... For everybody, 2020 has been a year full of challenges, and most of the horse expos and horsemanship clinics around the country that I normally travel to, of course, were canceled uh, during the shutdown, and and as the summer went on, the only thing that remained stable in my life was the horsemanship clinics that I conduct at the Sea Lazy U Ranch here in Colorado, and it was really my saving grace this year. We had three really successful programs up there. The 100-year-old guest ranch managed to operate all summer long under strict COVID guidelines, and they did not have any incidents of sickness. And we were able to pull off three awesome programs there. Two of them I did with my partner and colleague, Barbara Schulte. Some of you may know Barbara Schulte and her body of work both as a Hall of Fame cutting horse trainer and also as a performance, um, high performance coach and a uh, life coach is, is the kind of stuff that she does now. And so we have these programs at Sea Lazy U. We did, uh, I did one program on my own and then two with Barbara that were awesome. I had a fourth program scheduled this fall that I was super looking forward to, um, my horsemanship immersion clinic. It was going to be um, the first time ever for me doing that program. So I was super excited about generating a new program. And I designed this program just for insatiable learners. In every clinic I've ever done, in every presentation at an expo I've ever given, I've I've encountered people that are just insatiable about learning. And they want to learn just for the sake of learning. Sometimes they're not even really horse people, uh, but they just enjoy learning so much about these intricate animals and, and intricate sport. So ultimately, over the years, I've had so many people ask that I finally created a program just for insatiable learners where we were going to do nothing but study horses um, for four to five days up at the Sea Lazy U Ranch where they have a herd of 200 saddle horses. So we were going to study um, medicine and farrier and saddle fit and confirmation and improve riding skills, improve groundwork skills and do some training. And um, all of that got canceled just a few days before the clinic was supposed to start because of the raging wildfires here in Colorado. Um, Ultimately, the ranch not only had to shut down, but they had to evacuate their herd of 200 horses, not once, but twice. This fire was called the East Troublesome Fire. It still is called that because it's not out yet. But this fire burned with um, 
historical um, velocity. It, it, it grew at a rate over 24, 48 hours, fueled by 70, 80 mile an hour um, gusts up to 100 uh, wind, and it just consumed 100,000 acres overnight. And it was crazy. And so the ranch had to, first they just evacuated the herd out of, um, in an abundance of caution. And so as soon as the fire started, and it appeared that there was the potential for it coming towards the ranch, they evacuated the herd with the help of community members to some low-lying areas in the valley. And ultimately the fire blew up and over four or five days, it consumed so much land that it was actually in, um, potentially encroaching the ranch that the horses were moved to. <laughs> so once again, uh, 187 horses were loaded up into trailers driven by, in many cases, just by uh, friends and neighbors and volunteers. And they drove the horses over the Continental, back over the Continental Divide to the, to the Front Range. And they uh, were um, found um, accommodation there at a beautiful private ranch um, in Evergreen, Colorado. And so um, this, in the last month, since my last recording, my life has sort of been consumed with this fire and the cancellation of clinics and the moving of this herd. My dear friends up there, the ranch that I love so much and I, I work at a lot through the years. And um, so I'm happy to say the ranch survived the fire. There was some damage, the old horse barn burned down and a um, a few smaller buildings, but miraculously, the uh, center of the ranch and the lodging and the old hundred-year-old lodge and all of that was spared in the fire. Um, we have since repatriated the horses up to the ranch. They were able to flood the meadows of the ranch uh, prior to the fire starting. So those meadows were basically, you know, standing in water when the fire blew over and so those meadows didn't burn and so I had an exciting um, weekend last weekend when we moved the horses back to the ranch I volunteered to help come load horses so we, we moved um, let's see by then it was down to 182 horses um, you know as horses w were sick or injured or needed special care they of course were taken different to different facilities so we were down to 182 horses um, and in less than 24 hours all of those horses were moved back to the ranch in a whole bunch of different trailers I helped load 62 horses in two and a half hours um, I'm gonna estimate that I actually held the lead rope of over 50 of those horses as we coaxed them into the trailers and um it was an exciting day a lot of volunteers came together to help um and we sort of developed a rhythm i was working alongside the retired head wrangler from sea lazy u mr bill fisher um, many of you that have been guests at sea lazy u know bill uh, bill and i and my husband rich kind of developed a, a really good rhythm for loading these horses and 
you know, it it was fun. It was uh, scary at times, I'll admit. I had a couple of incidents inside the trailer with draft horses pulling back that was kind of scary. Um, but no one got hurt, no, and the horses were all fine. The horses are happy at home now. But what an opportunity. At the end of that, I was so tired and so exhausted, but it felt so good to have helped my friends and neighbors. And, and also, I thought, wow, who would ever get that kind of experience in two and a half hours to load, you know, 62 different horses into a variety of different trailers, including one semi truck. And, uh, you know, a lot of the horses just walked right on without question. Some of them were a little suspicious and some, a few of them were downright certain it was a bad idea uh, to get in a trailer. But we, in just two and a half hours, got all those horses onto a trailer and safely um, on their way back to the ranch. So I'm super excited for Sea Lazy U to have survived the fires. Um, my clinics are still on the schedule for next year up at Sea Lazy U. I'll be doing two programs with Barbara Schulte again. Um, we're going we're gonna to repeat the Horsemanship Immersion Clinic um, in this coming spring when they reopen. And I'm really looking forward to getting back. And um, I'm just so grateful that the ranch is still there. As many of you know, for the last six months, I've been fostering a young paint horse gelding by the name of Doc Gunner. We've done a major social media campaign with him on Facebook. So you may have seen some of the training progress we made with this horse. It was quite a quite a drama, quite a story. This horse had a lot of hidden health issues that we were able to investigate and um, resolve. And we got him trained and he's doing really well under saddle, walk, trot, and canter. And uh, super happy to announce that we found the most perfect home, permanent forever home for this horse in Southern California. It's a great climate for him to be in. I couldn't have designed a better uh, new owner for this horse. In fact, that's exactly what we do. We did. We looked at all the applications for adopting this horse, and we tried to find the one that best fit Doc Gunner. And the adopting family are the third generation owners of a feed store there in Lomita, California. And they have a fabulous trainer that they work with. Um, so this horse is going to get the best care, the best feed. Um, it's a feed and tack store, so um, that's perfect for uh, being able to outfit this horse for everything he needs and a trainer to continue to bring his training along. They're so excited to be adopting this horse. And actually, um, he leaves my ranch today on his way to California. Uh, so we have little bit of sadness, a little bit of tears in our eyes, um, knowing that we're going to watch the horse drive away forever. But I know that sometimes, um, sometime in the future, when I come to Southern California, I'll be able to stop by and visit and see how this horse is maturing. So as one story comes to an end, we have a new beginning um, with some horses that we are fostering who are evacuation refugees from the East Troublesome Fire. And in fact, it is a Clydesdale broodmare and her young surprise baby um, named Remington. So the mama's name is Joy, the baby's name is Remington. 
He, uh, Joy was acquired by the ranch um, this spring in 2020 as a riding horse, and they rode her all summer. And then um, about late summer, early fall, they noticed she was in fact pregnant. And so they did not, nobody knew she was pregnant. Um, they brought her in from the herd and the baby was born on October 1st, which as most of you know, is really, really late for a baby horse to be born. And he's facing, particularly here in Colorado where the winters come hard and fast, and uh, this poor colt, uh, by the way, he appears to be a purebred, Clydesdale. Uh, he's super cute. He's a beautiful horse. He's full of himself, as you can imagine. But this poor little guy in four weeks of life ended up living in four different places because first he was born on the ranch up at Sea Lazy U. And then he was just three weeks old when the fire broke out and he was evacuated to a nearby town at a horse property. I believe he went to the vets, um, to the veterinary center. And then uh, just a few, four or five days later, he had to be evacuated again to get further away from the fires. And then uh, at that point, I came up and got him and brought him back to my place. So our place was his fourth home in four weeks of life. But he has just accepted the changes um, happily, and we're having a really good time with him. We're going to uh, journal his progress and his time with us at facebook.com slash Julie Goodnight. So if you want to meet Remington and Joy in a uh, up close and personal, uh, go to facebook.com slash Julie Goodnight and look for the videos uh, about the Clydesdales. I'm also looking forward to 2021 and I'm super hopeful about the good news we've been getting about the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm super hopeful about the positive changes we're seeing um, and in, in our society and uh, people taking responsibility. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that um, we still can salvage 2021. I have three horse expos booked for the spring. Um, who knows where we'll be, you know, four months from now. But um, I suspect I'll be doing more smaller events and private clinics in 2021. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, for private clinics, um, it's, it's a pretty flexible situation where I come to your facility and conduct a clinic for, for one or more people. I, the, the number of people is irrelevant to me. I'm, I'm happy to have one person or 20 or 30 but um, I just work on a flat fee basis. So for more information on organizing a private clinic, please go to juliegoodnight.com slash private clinic and you, you can figure out how that works. I'd love to come to your part of the country for a clinic um, when we can get back to that kind of stuff. Um, while you're at my website, be sure to check out all my online training programs and streaming services at signin.juliegoodnight.com. Plus, we've got innovative grooming tools, tack, equipment, and educational resources at shop.juliegoodnight.com. Later in this show, I've got some brand new questions to answer straight from our listeners in the What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this podcast. Have you ever been frustrated with your riding because you think you should be better by now? 
Have you succumbed to the temptation to compare yourself to another rider or compare your horse to another horse and wonder why you can't ride like that? What do they have that I don't? Or maybe you had a trainer get on your horse when the horse was acting like a monster, only to, only to see the horse immediately transform into putty in their hands. It's frustrating. I get it. But here's the problem. Focusing on what you don't have will never get you anywhere. The negativity that you bring into your riding and your relationship with your horse when you focus on what you don't have is really destructive. The solution is to ride your own ride. Be accepting of where you are now and be grateful for the opportunity to improve. Focus on the journey. Focus on the opportunities to learn. That's what we'll talk about today. I get it that the temptation to compare yourself to others and the temptation to be impatient in learning such an intricate and complicated sport, it's frustrating. The problem is that when you get frustrated with your accomplishment and when you succumb to the temptation to compare yourself to others, it brings a lot of negativity into your riding. You know, frustration can be a very destructive emotion. And because, first of all, let me just say right out of the chute, whenever I see a frustrated rider, I see a frustrated horse. Frustration, when the rider gets frustrated or angry or impatient, that immediately transfers to the horse and the horse's behavior tends to devolve at the same rate the rider's does. Comparing yourself to others and focusing on what you don't have in your riding also closes your mind to learning. You will miss the moments of learning if you're so focused on something else and something out of your control. Remember, this is about the journey, not the destination, because there really is no final destination in horse sports. I've been at this for, I'm 61 years old. I've been a serious, serious rider for over 50 years. And I, the destination is still just as far away to me as it was when I was a kid. I'll never learn it all. I'll never be a perfect rider. But all I can do is keep trying to learn more and keep trying to be better for my horse. So really, the first thing you need to do is accept that riding is about the journey, not the destination. Your relationship with your horse is all about that journey. It's about building trust and respect and communication and building a partnership with your horse. So the the true joy is in the process, is in the journey. And when you compare yourself to others, particularly when you compare yourself to someone else who has, you know, years, if not decades more experience than you do, it disrespects the process. It, it disrespects their journey. And it, it sort of hides the fact that they put a lot of time and effort and energy and determination and grit into getting where they are today. So all of that um, brings a lot of negativity into the whole thing. And because horses are such um, emotional animals that are programmed to adopt the emotions of the animals around them, when you have these kind of negative emotions in your riding and in your training and in your 
uh, performance, uh, it, it definitely carries over to the horse. It stresses him out. Um, it makes him emotional. And you see uh, the performance decline. And often we see undesirable behaviors rise up. So, you know, this, this um, undeniable urge to compare yourself to others is something that is particularly, uh, you're particularly susceptible to this when you're first starting out in riding. After you've been in horse sports for a while and you come to understand how long it takes to develop proficiency and how much there is to know and how many skills there are to master, then you can develop more patience. But in the beginning, um, it's, it's hard for people. I've I've no, I've had a couple of uh, students throughout uh, my career that have exemplified this. Um, one was a friend and neighbor I'll never forget, and he um, he got into horses rather uh, impetuously, I should say, uh, rather um, unplanned. He actually was a um, oh I'm gonna say he was probably in his late fifties, early sixties. He was a recovering alcoholic and he needed to find the time to, um, he needed to find something to fill the time of the day that he would normally go to the bar, which was right after work. And so one day on his, as he was leaving work, he drove by a farm, a horse farm, and he just, on the spur of the moment, he pulled in and he looked around and he saw people riding horses and he said, you know, I want to learn to ride a horse and this would be the perfect thing to fill my evenings. And so he walked right up to the trainer and inquired about lessons. And she said, absolutely, you can start tomorrow. And that began his journey. Now, it just so happened that the barn he pulled into was a hunter jumper barn. And as, as with most hunter jumper barns, most of the riders were young girls and they had their jumping ponies and they had their jumping horses and they went to horse shows and that's what they did. And so Glad didn't know there were different disciplines. He just said, well, this seems like a perfectly nice group of people. So he starts this, um, you know, 60 year old man uh, who's never ridden a horse before and who is, by the way, um, probably, you know, six feet tall, pretty a uh, stoutly built guy, uh, he decides to take up riding at a hunter-jumper park. Well, ultimately, he began getting frustrated because he was surrounded by 14-year-old hotshot hunter-jumper riders. And uh, everyone was saying, when are you going to start jumping? When are you going to start jumping? And he um, started getting frustrated that he wasn't making enough progress. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, Clyde, probably through the work that he had done in a 12-step program, got honest with his emotions and realized he had to ride his own ride. He can't compare himself to a bunch of 14-year-olds that have been riding for, you know, six years and showing jumpers. And he ultimately um, let go of all that. The he That social time with those uh, people became much more enjoyable to him. He did ultimately start jumping and even showing jumping horses, and he um, won some paint horse championships in that discipline. 
And uh, so to me, it was a really good example of first how natural it is to want to compare yourself to others and to get frustrated with your journey. But how ridiculous at the same time to think he was going to keep up with, you know, 14 year old kids that, are, that can jump horses bareback. And um, so it was also a, a perfect example of someone that recognized uh, that fault in themselves and overcame it. And then the payoff was huge. He actually got where he wanted to be in his riding. And most of all, he enjoyed the journey. So um, I see this kind of stuff all the time, all the time. Um, I'm dealing with it with a couple of different of my interactive students right now, the same type of thing, these feelings of feeling inadequate and feeling impatient about when you'll be able to do something, the frustration that exists when you've been working on working and working on something with your horse and you, and you can't get it, can't get it. And then a trainer comes along and boom, the horse does it perfectly. I get it. That's frustrating. But you have to accept, first of all, where you are on this journey. Uh, one time, you know, when I do horsemanship clinics, people come from all over and they bring their own horse. And oftentimes the horses have behavioral problems. Uh, first of all, that's one reason why they may have come to the clinic was to get help with their, their problems, their training problems. Second of all, a lot of horses, when you take them away from horse from home and they're uh, in a new place surrounded by strange horses, they, they, you know, have meltdowns and the like. And so it, that's my job when I'm at a horsemanship clinic to help you with your horse when you're struggling. And so, uh, one time I was at a clinic and I, in every clinic I do, I handle, I handle people's horses when they're having trouble and I get on them and I ride them and I try to help find solutions to their problems. So one time I was doing such a thing and the horse, I don't remember the exact nature of the problem with the horse, but the rider was clearly frustrated and it, it sort of was a longstanding problem. And I got on the horse and as, as we all know, it's true of most horse problems, riding problems are rider induced. And in this case was no different. The rider was the origin of the problems the horse uh, was having. And so I got on the horse and the horse sorted out pretty quickly and immediately became, um, started behaving in ways that we wanted him to behave. And, um, so we made a lesson out of it and I got off the horse and returned the horse to the rider. And she made a comment to me, and it's not the first time that's happened, but her comment was, you know, something along the line of uh, dissing her horse because he was good for me and not for her. And, you know, she, like she was sort of pissed off by the fact that I did well with the horse. And instead of embracing the fact that we had found a solution to the problems she was having, she immediately became jealous of the success that I had with the horse and wanted to know how come she couldn't do that. Well, you know, I had, you know, probably easily 50 years of experience, more experience than her, um, 30 to 40 of which is professional level experience in training horses. So is it, was it really realistic for her to compare uh, what she can do with a horse with what I can do with a horse? 
It was ridiculous to think that. And by the way, I was pretty insulted by it. Now, I did not let her know that. I just went on teaching the program and I tried to help her understand there was an opportunity in front of her. It's not something that was negative that just happened. It's actually something positive. So look, I think first and foremost, we all have to realize that horse sports, training horses, riding horses, handling horses from the ground, this is not an easy endeavor. It's hard. It's complicated. It's physical. It takes grit and determination. And most of all, it takes patience and courage. So the solution is to ride your own ride, to be grateful and accepting of where you are now, to identify where you are now so that you can identify what skills and knowledge you need to attain so that you can focus on the learning, so that you can have deliberate practice that gets you somewhere with every single ride you take. So now look, there's a difference, I think, between being competitive with yourself and being competitive with others. You know, I'm not dissing competition. Um, a lot of people operate really well under competition. It brings out um, good qualities. It, it, it helps you have a goal to go after. Um, but when you're competing with someone else strictly because they have something you don't or you want to be like them, I'm, not talk I'm talking about outside a formal competition, that, that's something you want to look closely at and, and make sure that it's not having an ultimately negative effect on your self-worth. So I am, am very, very competitive with myself. I always want to do things better. No matter what I do, I, I kind of want to do it the best anyone else could do it. I'm not comparing myself to others in that. I'm comparing myself against myself. And so, you know, for many years when I was young and trying to make ends meet as a horse trainer, I waited tables at night at the local restaurant. And I loved waiting tables. That, by the way, is a very complicated job. And I loved the challenge of being a good server. I loved the challenge of trying to make the best tips of anyone that worked there. And I loved the challenge of trying to learn my customers' names and what they were going to order. And so I think that there is a mindset that has absolutely nothing to do with horses. And I think that being competitive with yourself and having that drive to always do better and to always improve, I think that can be valuable. But when you're comparing yourself to others, um, because you want what they have, I think that can be pretty destructive. And particularly when it comes to horses, because we have to keep in mind that no two horses are the same. You could have horses, uh, even full brother horses that were, you know, raised on the same farm, trained by the same trainer, and they're still not the same. And no two people are the same. We all have different attributes. We all have different athletic abilities. We all bring different knowledge base and experiences to the table. So to compare ourselves to others, is ultimately can be destructive to your own self-worth. Um, you start thinking things like, I'll never get this right. Um, you know, you. I think it's important if you are competitive within yourself that you aren't so competitive that that becomes negative. So I want 
to always make sure that even though I am very driven to do better, that I always celebrate my small successes, um, that I talk to myself as a friend would when I make mistakes. I don't, I don't hate myself. I don't blame myself. I don't say destructive things to myself. Talk to yourself as if you would talk to a friend and encourage them. Um, so there are ways to handle these personal um, emotions that are going, com sometimes conflicting emotions going on inside our head. But ultimately, when it comes to improving your riding, there's so much that we have to work on. We have to develop skills, physical skills. We have to expand our knowledge base, knowledge of horse behavior, knowledge of uh, riding theory, knowledge of science-based horse training techniques. And then skills and knowledge aren't just enough. You also have to have experience. And so experience adds up over weeks and months and years. Experience in horses adds up with the more different horses you encounter, the more different situations and places uh, you go to with horses. So to build that kind of perfect storm in your horsemanship endeavors, the perfect confluence of skills and knowledge and experience, it takes years, not weeks. So if we can agree that comparing yourself to others is not a good way to approach riding, and if we can agree that focusing on what you don't have is destructive to your journey in horsemanship, then let's just start with recognizing where you are now in this journey. That's a really important first step. Unless and until you recognize exactly where you are now in this horsemanship journey, you're going to have a hard time understanding what it is you need to work on next. And so if you're just starting out in horse sports and you're watching a professional rider um, go over a high level uh, course of jumps or a cutting horse trainer, you know, work a, a tough cow and you're saying, I want to be like that today, you're missing a lot. And you're missing so much of the equation that you're actually going to impede your ability to get to that level because you don't recognize the steps it took to get there. So I rely a lot on this uh, theory of competency that I learned about decades ago. And it's something I learned in college in studying psychology and um, education. And it's a it's a theory called Four Stages of Competency, and it is uh, was made widely popular by a man named Martin M. Broadwell. And what it is, is basically that we move through four levels of competency as we uh, begin to um, consciously acquire new skills, or, or as we start off on a new endeavor, we are going to go through four levels of competency. Now this does this could be any any endeavor in society, not horseback riding, including horseback riding. And so the first level is called the unconscious incompetent. The second level is conscious incompetent. Third level is the unconscious competent. 
And then the fourth level is the conscious competent. Most people will never reach the fourth level because that entails true mastery of the endeavor. Um, but the first thing for you to recognize is that when you understand fully where you are in your level of competency, you begin to consciously be able to acquire new skills. You must first recognize your incompetency and the value of the skill before you're going to be successful in acquiring the skill. So let's break these down just a little bit more. So the very first step is called unconscious incompetent. And the length of time, by the way, you will spend in number one depends on how strongly you desire to learn. If you're um, if the strength of stimulus for you to learn is really high, you're not going to spend much time at all in the unconscious incompetent level. But in, in this level, I, I think, and, the, and here's why this relates so perfectly to horsemanship, because in the unconscious incompetent level, you don't know what you don't know. There's so much missing information that you have no idea what you don't know. And we see this day in and day out in horses. So when horses come to riding, or sorry, when people come into riding sports for the first time, they're like, oh yeah, I've been doing this all my life. And I, I want a horse that runs and, um, and oh, sure. I want to, oh yeah, I would like to start jumping, please. And at this level, it's very difficult to to dissuade people because they have no idea what they don't know. You've all been around people that are so new to horses that they do things like wear flip-flops, lead a horse in flip-flops or tie them to a, you know, something that's going to break if the horse, you know, sneezes. And so the unconscious incompetency level is, is when you're very new to something, you have no idea how hard is it going to be to learn it and what you need to work on. And again, let me remind you that the length of time you spend in this level depends on how strongly you want to learn. Because level number two, the conscious incompetent, means that you don't really understand what it is you're doing or know how to do it, but you recognize your deficit. Um, in other words, you begin to understand there's a whole lot more to this and you don't know what it is, but you know you don't know it. And you start recognizing that other people seem to be know about stuff you don't know about and seem to be doing things you don't know about. And so at this level, the conscious incompetent, you're beginning to recognize what your deficit level is. Mistakes, by the way, are critical at this stage. Mistakes are critical to learning. Without mistakes, you cannot learn. Failure is necessary to learning, particularly when it comes to learning physical skills. And so if you are in this conscious incompetence stage, this is the stage where it starts getting tempting to compare yourself to others and to want to have what they have and to get frustrated when you make mistakes. And it's even more frustrating when you make the same mistakes over and over again. And it's even more frustrating when you make stupid mistakes. 
but this is all a part of learning. And the only way you will ever get out of this conscious incompetence stage is by accepting where you are and really uh, qualifying the uh, deficits that you have and starting to plug away at filling those deficits. So if you're getting frustrated at mistakes, if you're getting impatient and feel like you shouldn't have to be working on this that you're working on now, um, I think you can begin to see how you impede your progress. So it is in the understanding, there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know, trying to um, quantify and qualify those deficits so that you can begin to work on them and embracing your mistakes uh, analyzing your mistakes, learning from your mistakes so that you can move on um, to a, a, a greater level of competency. Number three is the unconscious competent. So at this level, you're starting to understand what you're doing. You're understanding the theory behind the skills. You know how to do it and you're getting some level of success, but you might find it difficult to explain to others. You might find it difficult to demonstrate on demand. The unconscious competent is able, basically is someone that's able to do a skill, but not really explain how they do it. Um, and there at this level, the unconscious competent, there is still heavy conscious involvement in executing the skill. And so you're still having to put a lot of thought into doing it right. You've come up with a systematic way, let's say, to cue your horse, but you're still having to think about it every single time you do it. Uh, I think um, learning to stop a horse with your seat is a good example of this. We all get in the habit of stopping with our hands. And so then when you, when you finally realize that that's a huge deficit in your riding, it's already ingrained upon you to pull back on the reins. And so you can train yourself not to do that because you're starting to understand that it's more important that you cue with your seat than your hands but it requires heavy conscious involvement every time you stop that horse to remind yourself not to use your hands, to remind yourself to exhale, sit back, you know, press into the saddle. Um, so th the third level is the unconscious competent um, where you're starting to gain competency at this level, um, but you're still having to think about it really hard. The fourth level of competency is called the conscious competent. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, few people ever make it this high in riding because riding and horse sports are so complicated. And because we're dealing with a live animal, um, every one of which is a different individual and so is going to act and respond and behave differently. In the conscious competent uh, has had so much practice has reached a level of mastery where the skill is second nature. There's almost no thought involved in executing this skill. That's when we say things like you could do it in your sleep. Um, in fact, the skills can generally be performed while you're executing another task, such as explaining or demonstrating uh, the skill. And um, the conscious competent is not only fully understands 
can execute the skill, fully understands the theory behind the skill and the knowledge base required behind the skill, um, but can also explain to others and as they demonstrate and as they do the skill and can um, ha have good success at teaching it to others. So as I said, that requires a, lot, a level of mastery that not everyone is going to attain. However, that doesn't mean you stop trying. The, the farther you get in your competency, the stronger the desire to learn more and to get better and better and better. So it's not like as you move through these levels of competency that you're coming to the end or that you're coming to a destination because the higher you go, the more you want more. And so you essentially become, you know, the ultimate uh, permanent student. So another interesting um, thing we can take from psychology, and of course, you know, the subject we're talking about having a positive attitude towards learning, accepting where you are, not comparing yourself to others. Um, these are all psychological skills, not writing skills. Now you'll notice none of this that we're talking about involves specific physical writing skills, but these are mental skills that are critical to your success with horse sports. So another thing I think it's important to look at in the world of psychology that we can stand to learn from, from on this subject it is so true with horses is something called cognitive bias. And um, that is also sometimes referred to as illusory superiority or an incorrect self-assessment. So remember I said just a minute ago that before you can move forward on this journey, you have to under understand and accept where you are now before you can gain skill, you have to understand where your deficits are. And so incorrect self-assessment can be really harmful to your progress because if you think, if you have this illusory superiority and let's say you've only had two riding lessons and you think you ought to start jumping on your next lesson, um, you are gonna miss out, not to mention the danger involved in that, you are going to miss out on a lot of important learning that you're going to have to go back and do sooner or later because you thought you were ready to start jumping. So this is so funny um, with horses. Uh, so, the, so the theory of cognitive bias is that competent people always underestimate their skill level and incompetent people always overestimate their skill level. So the least competent people are the most overconfident about their skill level. And anyone who's been in horses on a professional level knows this to be highly, highly true. So for instance, if you've ever taken people out on trail rides uh, at, uh, for a job, um, the head wrangler, you know, it's his job or her job to match up the horse and the rider. And not all our horses are perfect beginner horses, nor would you, if you're an experienced rider, want to necessarily ride a beginner horse. So one of our first questions is always, well, you know, how good a rider are you? And you're going to get, and we know you don't have to be in this business very long before you learn that the people with the least competency always say, I've been riding all my life and I want the horse that runs. And the people with experience and knowledge actually 
underestimate their skills and say, oh, you know, you know, whatever you have is fine. Uh, yeah, I can ride, but you know, I'm, I'm just, I just want a nice relaxed ride. And, um, so we learn, uh, this, this carries over to riding lessons. This carries over to horse trainers. Um, until you really know and understand your true competency level, there is going to be a, a tendency to overestimate your skill level, particularly in something as intricate and complicated as horses. So I bring all this up to, to just emphasize how important it is that you um, not only understand exactly what your competency level is right now, but that you accept where you are and, and seek to find what the very next step is, um, not the step all the way to the top. So once you have accepted where you are in this journey and you're comfortable with that and you've begun to identify your deficits and what you need to work on the most in this moment in time, I think it's important for us to think about and talk about how do you maximize your learning? Look, this is a sport that takes a lifetime to master. So how can we maximize learning? How can we have rapid skill acquisition in order to get you where you want to be as quickly as possible? I, I am really fond of the theory that's called 10,000 hours of practice to master. Um, it was first brought into popularity by a man by the name of Malcolm Gladwell he wrote a book called Outliers, uh, The Story of, of Success. I believe that book was, oh, back in the eight, 1980s or 90s. Um, ultimately, his theory of 10,000 hours of practice drew a lot of criticism, mainly because it was ultimately pointed out, first of all, that 10,000 is just a number and there's no magic formula behind that number. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. Um, the other reason it was uh, widely debunked was that practice is not the most important thing, but deliberate practice, high quality practice, perfect practice uh, is, is what has to occur. So the original 10,000 hours of practice to master to me, I felt was very, again, very applicable to learning to ride horses because it's such a complicating and complicated endeavor when you're dealing um, not only with an extremely challenging balance sport that requires bilateral coordination and that requires that you learn an uh, intricate series of, of cueing and um, ability to control and then that the fact that you ride a lot of different animals, all of who have their own idiosyncrasies. So it's ex extremely complicated. So I thought, you know, this, this 10,000 hours of practice to master is probably pretty spot on when it comes to horses. It's one, one thing that I make my students in my interactive program do early on when they're evaluating their horse and their own riding is to try to add up really the time, the meaningful time that you have had either training your horse or, or your horse's training history um, or your own riding. Um, sometimes that puts things into perspective when we think about the 10,000 hours uh, needed to master something. But this concept 
is about the key to achieving world-class expertise. So we're not talking about just, you know, becoming proficient at the walk, trot, and canter. We're talking about achieving world-class expertise. Uh, We're talking about what Malcolm Gladwell called the tipping point of greatness. So it's, it's based on research of top performers in many different fields and um, how they got to that level. Um, so by the way, if, if you did believe or subscribe to the fact that 10,000 hours was a magic number, that would require a minimum of 90 minutes of practice a day for 20 years in order to achieve world-class mastery. So that should put things into perspective for you a lot when, uh, if you're just starting out on this journey. Uh, but the 10,000 hours was actually derived as an average amount of time for these top elite performers in a variety of different fields to have um, put in before they reached the mastery level. So um, in fact, later research substantiated that most quote unquote masters have spent at least 10 years acquiring and honing their skills. Um, and that even, um, you know, the, the person that we refer to as a true natural, uh, it's still going to take him eight or nine years, uh, to reach this level of mastery. Um, so, uh, a quote that I really love and stuck with me, um, on this subject is that only one who devotes herself to a cause with her whole strength and soul can be a true master. For this reason, mastery demands all of a person. And so look, we don't all have to become elite world-class masters of the sport. In fact, as we know, that's impossible. We all can't get there, but put things into perspective. And if you're just starting out in this sport and you're getting impatient after three or four riding lessons that you ought to be able to canter by now, I think it's important to sort of think about this 10,000 hours of practice and um, think about the fact that this is a long road and a complicated sport, Um, but you get there with a whole lot of little small steps. So this is about um, building small subsets of skills before you reach the level of mastery. Now, one reason why the 10,000 hours of practice theory fell out of favor was because it seemed to encourage mindless repetition versus deliberate practice. Now, to me, uh, this, this hit home by this a lot for me by this illustration, because when I travel and stay in hotels, I generally uh, use the hotel um, fitness room for a morning workout. And I love the elliptical machine. So I get on the elliptical machine, but I also love to read. So I bring my book. So here I am. I got headphones on listening to music. I got my Kindle in front of me reading a fascinating uh, spy novel or something that's really captivating me. And I'm doing the elliptical machine for 30 minutes. Now that is, falls into the category of mindless repetition, not deliberate practice. 
Because while I'm doing all those different things, listening to music, focusing on reading a book, thinking about that story and doing the elliptical machine, I'm just kind of going through the motions. Now, if I took that workout seriously and I wanted to make it deliberate practice, I wouldn't listen to the music. I wouldn't read the book. I would have my entire concentration on the movement that I was doing and how I was engaging my muscles and how my leg muscles connect to my thigh muscles. I'd be focused on the rhythm of my breathing. I'd be focused on trying to get my heart rate up. So you see that there's a huge difference between mindless repetition and deliberate practice. So when you get on your horse, if you're just going round and round and round the arena and talking to your friend and, um, you know, whatever, listening to music, that's not deliberate practice. Mastery of skills will not result. So, um, by the way, the latter, the deliberate practice that requires receiving continual feedback on your performance, both from yourself, from others, from the mirror, if you're in a workout room, from your horse, if you're riding a horse, from your instructor or trainer. But there has to be continual feedback on your performance in order to uh, improve your performance. And, um, you know, by the way, continual uh, feedback, continual concentration is very difficult. Even elite athletes find it difficult to bring that level of concentration to their performance for very long. So the uh, one thing that research has shown us is that the difference between a highly skilled performer and a lesser skilled or an amateur level performance is how well their information is categorized in their brain and how easily they can access it. So uh, experts can access the information in their head faster and more reliable due to the fact that they've been involved in highly engaged, deliberate practice. And so that makes sense, right? So if every time I practiced on that elliptical, I was 100% focused on my form, on the strength I was building, on my uh, you know cardiovascular rate, on my uh, breathing volume. If I stayed entirely focused on that, um, then I became so practiced in that engagement, that highly concentrated engagement, that later when I need that skill for real, my mind is already wrapped into the maneuver. I've already practiced the focus I need. Um, to execute that skill. So what what else is involved in deliberate practice? Um, first of all, uh, if you're deliberately practicing for rapid skill acquisition, you need to be willing to take risks. You need to push yourself outside your comfort zone, canter for a little bit longer, go to that place you've been avoiding. Um, you need to push yourself at times, not all the time, but some of the time. Um, remember that you can only succeed because of the failures that you have. So if you don't continually push up against your comfort zone, you don't build skill level. If you don't continually bump up against your comfort zone, um, you might not make mistakes, but if you don't make the mistakes, you're not going to learn. So um, again, you have to not think of failure or mistakes 
as a negative thing, um, but turn it into a positive. It's an opportunity to learn. Hey, you just were able to identify what it is that you're doing wrong. So now you can fix it. Um, another factor involved in deliberate practice is definitely your motivation level. Deliberate practice takes more time. It takes way more effort. It takes way more concentration and you will have ups and downs. It's never, life is never about co continuously moving up. We always have ups and downs. You need to be driven to the point that you put in the time and the effort and the concentration. Um, you need to be driven to the point that you don't uh, that you're disappointed by your mistakes, but you cannot let mistakes and the downturns in your progress uh, define how you're doing. You have to let uh, let that dictate what you work on next. It's also extremely important in deliberate practice that you measure your progress. But what metrics are you going to use? How do you measure your progress with your horse? Well, there's lots of ways to do that. You can set set definitive goals, like I want to be able to, you know, attend a horse show or complete the pattern, or I would like to be able to, you know, canter out in the open or, you know, go on a trail ride by myself so we can set goals. Um, but how do you measure the smaller progress? What is it um, that you're going to be you know, paying attention to to know if you're making progress? The great thing about horses is, our horse is a really important part of your feedback loop. Um, horses don't lie. They're pretty transparent in what they're thinking. They're pretty transparent in their behavior. They're transparent in their obedience and disobedience. Um, they're uh, transparent in their emotions. And so certainly um, your horse provides a great uh, metric within which you can measure your progress. It's also important to learn from winners not by trial and error. So we seek out knowledge from experts. We seek out knowledge from people who have accomplished what we are setting out to accomplish. Um, they can help us along the way. It's, it's too much to try and learn on your own. Um, but make sure when you seek out people to learn from that, there's something about their accomplishments that you, um, that you admire and you wish to emulate. Um, so if, if, you know, a guy has won multiple world championships, that might be great. But if, um, if he, you know, in that process, three out of the four horses that he trained went lame and never got anywhere, well, that, that might not be a winner you want to learn from. So, um, look at the big picture, make sure you surround yourself with people who, not only know more than you, but who are also equally motivated to learn and become proficient and to increase their competency level. And then just finally practice deliberately. Don't, don't practice mindlessly. Think about the small sub skills you are working on now and uh, find a deliberate practice that addresses those. And it, you know, it takes us back to the old saying, practice does not make perfect only perfect practice makes perfect. And that's what deliberate practice is. Finally, I think it's important if you're, if you're highly motivated to uh, get further along on this journey, to accelerate your learning, to develop rapid skill acquisition, then you want to think about meta-learning. And meta-learning is just simply learning about learning. 
And this is a concept that was brought to my attention by an author by the name of Rob Nightingale. And um, he's written books about rapid skill acquisition. And when you winnow it all down or boil it all down, there's just three really important concepts that I think apply so beautifully to horsemanship when it comes to rapid skill acquisition. And first, the first thing is, um, we've really actually talked about all of this, but this is putting it into a neater little package. So first and most importantly, you need to have a feedback loop. You need to find out exactly what you need to change in order to reach your goal more quickly. You need to get this feedback from yourself. So you're constantly analyzing your position. You're constantly analyzing, are your muscles relaxed? Are you balanced? Are you using your seat and legs? You're constantly analyzing how your horse is responding, how your horse feels. But it's equally important, particularly in horsemanship, that you get feedback from others. And you need to, it doesn't necessarily have to be a professional trainer, but it has to be somebody that's knowledgeable, experienced, and observant that can tell you, you know, it looks to me like you're tensing your shoulders. It looks like to me you're sitting too far forward. You know, it looks like to me you're pulling back on the reins before you want to. So this feedback loop is critical to rapid skill acquisition. If you just ride and ride and ride and ride, trotting, trotting, trotting for a hundred miles, if you're not paying attention to all of these things and getting feedback from yourself and others, you'll finish that hundred mile trot at the same skill level that you started it in. So there has to be intentional feedback in order to improve. Second, and we've already talked about this a lot, deliberate practice. Focus deliberately on the narrow sub-skills you need to make up an overall skill. So yeah, I want to learn to canter. Well, what are the all the skill sub-skills that we need to have in order before you're actually ready to successfully canter? Let's break it down because there's going to be a lot. And let's set about to accomplish each one of those sub-skills in order of the progression um, before we think about mastering the canter. So the level of concentration needed for deliberate practice is very, very hard. You can only bring that kind of concentration and focus um, for a pretty short period of time. So don't um, you know, try to do the impossible but become aware of your focus level and try to spend time in your riding. Look, I know for a lot of people, riding is a social activity. In fact, I recently learned that uh, research has shown us that about a third of riders um, are in it uh, for the sport of riding, for the love of horses. About a third of them are in it uh, for some kind of competition or accomplishment. And about a third of them um, are in it for social reasons. And so I get it that riding is fun. And when you have time to ride with others, you want to just, uh, you know, enjoy that social time. Your horse will enjoy it too. But you need to set aside time for you to focus, uh, preferably alone or with the feedback of a trainer um, so that you can bring all your focus to the table uh, and work on deliberate practice. And the final area of meta learning that really helps increase uh, skill acquisition 
is something I talk about in almost every clinic I do, and that is to become a teacher. When you teach something to someone else, it always brings clarity. The best way to learn something fully is to teach it to someone else, document and explain it. I always tell people at the end of a horsemanship clinic, if there was something that you learned this weekend that was meaningful, the first thing you need to do is go home and write it down. Because if you don't write it down, you're going to lose it. You're going to forget about it. Two weeks are going to go by and you'll forget about it. The second thing is, if you learned something meaningful in this clinic this weekend, go home and teach it to somebody else. Share it with somebody else because it is in the teaching of it to someone else that you will actually learn it more thoroughly. It will bring clarity to what you have learned and it will become a skill that you get to own permanently. So, um, by the way, when they look at, when you look at learning uh, techniques and approaches to education, uh, we can divide them into two categories, a passive approach and a participatory approach. And so the, the passive approaches would be lecture, demonstration, or reading about a subject. Participatory approaches would be practicing, actually doing it, the, the physically doing of the skill. And research shows us that the participatory approach has about a 90% retention rate. And when you get to the very um, least effective of the passive approach is lecture, and there's only a 10% retention rate. Um, a demonstration has like, uh, you know, 10% and, and reading 15% or something like that. So is is clearly demonstrated in research that deliberate practice, participating in deliberate practice, um, has the highest level of retention rate when it comes to learning and skill building. Um, but unfortunately, the passive approach is how we most often approach it, new stuff. And so, you know, people thinking about coming into riding, they start going to horse expos and watching demonstrations and doing a lot of reading on the internet and magazines. They might attend some, um, you know, PowerPoint presentations. And um, so what they're doing is, is embarking on a journey that is very complicated to learn and utilizing the least effective means of learning, which is, uh, you know, lecture, reading, and demonstration. So all of that to say that deliberate practice is the most important thing for you to focus on. So in conclusion, I would have to say that there are many things you can do to accelerate your learning and diminish your frustration. Um, First and foremost is to focus on what you can do. Focus on what you want to happen, not on what you don't have and what you can't do. When you focus on what you can't, cannot do, uh, that's where you tend to stay. Um, when you have a, a confidence crisis and you focus on what you're afraid of, that almost eliminates the possibility of building confidence. So focus on what you can do and focus on what you want to happen next. Also respect the process, embrace the journey and be conscious of your, your current competency level and focus on the learning. You need to know and accept that this is a long road and a complicated journey and celebrate the small successes you have along the way. 
And finally, do what you can to accelerate your learning. Develop deliberate practicing techniques. Focus on sub-skills. Make sure you're getting plenty of feedback, both paying attention to the feedback from yourself, the feedback from your horse, and get some expert help. This is way too much to learn in one lifetime by yourself. Finally, in order to accelerate learning, you want to teach to others that will always bring clarity to the subject for yourself. And surround yourself with like-minded people, with gritty, determined people. Have patience and kindness towards yourself and others and your horses. The bigger your hurry, the greater the temptation to skip steps and the slower it goes ultimately. Finally, I'll leave you with this thought from Angela Lee Duckworth. And it's about having grit. Grit is the perseverance and passion for long-term goals. It's working strenuously toward challenges, maintaining effort and interest over years, despite failure, adversity, and plateaus in progress. Grit involves courage, consciousness, perseverance, resilience, and passion. To grow your grit, you need to be fascinated by the subject. I think we can all agree we're there with horses. I doubt you'd be listening to this podcast if you weren't already fascinated with horses. You need to practice deliberately. You need to connect to a higher purpose of why you're doing this and what your bigger goals are. And you need to cultivate hope. And That means that you look forward in a positive way, that you have faith in a positive outcome, and that you know you're going to get there. And you can see how opposite that is of comparing yourself to others and comparing your journey and disregarding theirs. You can see how important it is if we think about grit. I'd encourage you to look up Angela Lee Duckworth online. I would encourage you to watch her TED Talk. Um, She's a renowned educator that's um, brought this interesting concept of how do we teach people to have grit. And uh, we all know with horse sports, one needs a lot of grit. It's a tough sport. They're big animals. They're scary at times. And it's a very physical sport. So the more grit we have, the more success we're going to have as well. And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. We pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hey, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Megan, go ahead and read the first question, please. Our first question comes from Sherry, and she says, I have a silly question. When I take my horse's bridle off after a ride, he will gently grab the bit in his front teeth. I always have my hand under it so it doesn't drop and hit his teeth. He will chew it for a few seconds and then release it. Why does he do this? Is he just being playful? Well, Sherry, I can honestly say that's the first time I've gotten that question, and it It's kind of a silly question, but only because it's kind of a silly thing that your horse is doing. And why he's doing that, I can't really say. You would probably have to ask him. However, I can tell you, I can reassure you that a lot of horses do this. 
to me, it's kind of a, a playful sort of um, thing. It, it goes along with, um, <laughs> you know, once a horse has been bridled so many times and he's carried that bit in his mouth, he knows the shape of the bit inside and out and how it sits in his mouth and the feel of it and how it goes in and out of his mouth. And he, he learns to eventually only open his teeth the exact diameter of the bit. And it's just a funny thing that horses do. I've always kind of somewhat thought of it as just like they don't have control over much, but they do have control over how wide they open their mouth to, to take in the bit. And then a lot of horses, uh, you know, we always want to make sure that our horses lower their head and open their mouth and spit the bit out that we never try to pull the bit out of the mouth. And consequently, because we allow the horse to spit the bit out on his own time, so to speak, um, a lot of horses will learn to do that just real slowly kind of um, roll the bit out of their mouth. And a lot of horses will hold it in their teeth and play with it just a little bit before they grow tired of that and spit it out. I just think of it as a totally benign behavior. It's generally a horse that's kind of playful and um, kind of a character, a horse that I often refer to as having a sense of humor. And I just kind of laugh it off and ignore it, which is sounds like what you're doing. Um, you know, if he, if he appeared to me, he was never going to let go of the bit. I would just uh, gently wiggle my finger in his mouth and encourage him to open it. But um, for the most part, I think it's benign. A horse just kind of playing with the bit a little bit. I don't think you need to read much more than that into it. And um, yeah, just let him have that little moment of fun. Okay, Megan, how about the next question? Our next question comes from Julie Q. She says, I have a concern about my 12-year-old AQHA gelding. He's very nervous out on the trail, really wants to move out, and is always on the lookout for something to spook at. I hate being on his mouth, but feel if I don't really keep him in check, he'll just take off. Julie, you have a 12-year-old quarter horse that's nervous and looky on the trail. Um, that all goes together, nervous, looky, and spooky. They're kind of all one and the same, just sort of different manifestations of the same behavior. So, and then um, let's let's talk about two different things here. I think, well, I'm going to say three different things because you don't you say he's a quarter horse, but you don't say how he's bred. Um, some quarter horses are bred for very specialized events like racing and cutting, and some horses have been bred from a lineage that um, makes them hot blooded. Um, cutting horses in particular tend to be very looky horses. They're sort of, it's inherent in their nature to follow movement, to look for movement, to look for anything that might possibly be a cow hiding behind a bush. So if you have a horse that's bred uh, that way, then he's not the best candidate for a trail horse. Can a horse bred that way become a good trail horse? Absolutely. Um, but that's going to involve um, maybe more challenging training than it would a horse that was more suited. So I have talked um, for years and written and, and done recordings and a ton of video 
about how important it is when you are working with a horse, teaching him to do a job or a task, that you disallow the horse from looking around. When horses are looking around excessively, and I don't mean just aware of their environment, but I mean excessively looking right and left in a nervous fashion, they're looking for something. They're looking for an exit. They're looking for a way out of their dilemma, or they're looking for something that they're afraid of, or they're looking for something that they want to get to. So when a horse is in that frame of mind, he's not the kind of horse you want to be riding. He's not the kind of horse you want to be standing next to on the ground because his focus is not on you and his focus is primarily on leaving. And so for us to have an enjoyable, relaxed ride and the horse for the horse to be in a work-oriented uh, focus, he, he's got to stop doing that. He's got to accept that looking around is, uh, is not only disallowed, but it's futile because he's not leaving. He's staying here and he's doing the job. And so when you rule out looking around, the horse then focuses on the task at hand. And so I bring that into my training immediately, um, starting with groundwork. And um, you will find that your horse will have a much different focus. Now, to project that onto trail riding, I certainly, you know, a good lead horse is going to be looking down the trail and aware of his environment. The horses behind that lead horse ought to just be following without looking around. It's not their job. It's the, it's the job of the one in front. And so I might allow my lead horse to have his head up and his ears perked forward and to scan in uh, the environment in front of him a little bit from right to left. But I don't want that horse picking up his head and looking completely past his shoulder in either direction and looking for something that's not there. So I will disallow it on the trail um, as well if the horse is excessively looky um, with the sort of exception that that lead horse obviously has a little bit more responsibility to look around. So the spookiness that you're experiencing is starting with all of that. The nervousness that you're describing this in this horse is uh, related to all of that. The more the horse is allowed to look around frantically searching for something that either he wants or doesn't want, then the more nervous uh, bundle of nerves he becomes. So this speaks to training. This training starts on the ground. I've written a lot about this. As I said, there's a ton of resources on my website about um, how you manage a horse. It should happen fast. It should happen, um, you know, you should get a change, a big change in your horse rapidly if you um, go about this correctly. So I would encourage you to check that out. Now, you said you also, you hate being in your horse's mouth, but you have a feeling if you give him um, the slightest release, he'll take off. Well, in part, that's related to the nervousness and the looking around and the flight behavior. So you will probably find that when you address the lookiness and the spookiness that your horse's nervous energy will come down. And you may find that as he relaxes and his head comes down and he is feeling more quiet underneath you, that you're more comfortable relaxing the reins. 
But look, when you're out on the trail, you don't want to ever have a big drape in your reins because, you know, let's imagine a grizzly bear could jump out in front of you at any moment. You, you just have to be prepared. You're in an uncontrolled environment. What if a mountain bike screams around the corner or, you know, whatever is the hazard in, in, in the area where you ride? So it, we, we never ride with a complete drape in the reins, but you don't want to be hanging on your horse's mouth and you want to be able to take up on the reins in, in the event of an emergency or a startle or a spook. So, but I, I, I can't, um, I can't let this go without mentioning that this is also a training issue. And so just like the lookiness, spookiness, nervousness is, is an issue in the horse's foundational training, um, loosening the reins does not mean go faster. It should, a horse should have never gotten that idea. Um, and a horse gets that idea from a rider that is complicit in the behavior by constantly holding the horse back. This happens a lot with horses that are very forward and full of energy. People get uh, easily slide into the habit of holding the horse back and preventing him from going faster. And in that process, the horse learns the exact wrong thing. He learns that the human's responsible for the horse's speed, that the horse isn't, isn't responsible for maintaining a steady speed. So from very early on in the horse's training, we want him to learn that the rider dictates the speed. The rider tells the horse what speed to go, but it's the horse's responsibility to maintain that speed. And that means don't speed up and that means don't slow down. And both of those are really, really important foundational issues. It's very, very easy for people to fall into this codependent pattern of holding a fast horse back or um, pedaling a, a lazy horse to go. And both of those are just poor training. So it, it's the opposite of, of what we strive to train a horse to do. So an obedient horse goes in the direction dictated by the rider at the speed chosen by the rider uh, without argument and without micromanagement. So the, the bottom line in training horses is that once I tell you to go a certain speed, you should continue doing that until I tell you to either slow down or speed up. And so that's a responsibility that's very easy for a horse to take on. Um, he naturally rates speed when the herd travels. He, it's, it's a very simple thing for a horse to learn, um, but it does have to be sort of a fundamental rule uh, that you teach the horse and then that you enforce throughout. Um, its performance career. So you've got some foundational work to do that do, but none of it's um, really that hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple, basic stuff. Again, there's lots and lots of resources on my website. So uh, go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and you can um, search and uh, there are free resources for you and also paid resources uh, where you can get more in-depth information and videos um, um, on learning some of these training techniques. Thank you for joining me today and I hope you found some useful tips and some good food for thought 
and that this is a topic that inspires you to focus more on your journey and to just drill down on your learning so that you achieve success. Next month on my podcast, I'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help make your horse life better. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most, so if you have questions or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers like you and me find this podcast. And don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. Or enroll in a horsemanship short course. Or join me at the premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and join today. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to enjoy the ride. visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.